random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Rodney Barnes, writer of Philadelphia, Blackula, Winning Time, Wu-Tang and American Saga, and a bunch of other things. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with Rodney Barnes. Rodney, good evening. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. So, yeah, And I think the last and final guest of 2023 on our podcast, actually. Well, there you go. This December 28th. the year outright. Right. Oh, are you right-handed also? Yeah, well, yeah, but yeah. Eddie's a lefty. That's another right. So what's fine? Yeah. Two rights make, uh, what, an airplane or something? Oh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. Halfway around the block? (laughs) Around the world, around the world. We'll go with the Daft Punk reference. Why not? Mm. But anyway, Rodney, first off, how has your 2023 been? Because you've been a very busy person. Well, you just answered the question. Pretty busy. (laughs) Still busy. All the way up to the end. And it's funny because, like, right now you're blowing things up. I'm seeing your stuff on social media, and you are talking a lot about Philadelphia. And with Philadelphia, our, you know, listeners, they're primarily Marvel-based, but a lot of them, you know, delve into the distinguished competition. They delve into the indies such as in, uh, Image and whatnot. What is Philadelphia? Philadelphia is a story about a vampire apocalypse which takes place in the city of Philadelphia, but our antagonist is John Adams, the second president of the United States, and our protagonists are father and son duo where dad is a vampire and son is a really petulant son, so it makes for a lot of fun. My favorite part of all that just now is Eddie almost fell out of his chair from you saying John Adams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I noticed that. President John Adams. Yeah, like, wait, wait, what? Okay, in a different life, alternate reality. I What the? Yes. Boy, I tell you, first Lincoln, and now this. I like that Eddie also just turned into Foghorn Leghorn a little bit with a, boy, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Eddie. Yep. But Vampire Apocalypse, I mean, the first thing I thought of was the Blade Trilogy, in in a sense. Yes. So little connection, maybe, or, or just tangent more than anything else, yeah. Yeah, only really in that I worked on the first Blade movie as a production assistant many years ago. Oh, my. That's the only okay. connection in my mind, but yeah. Okay. How long have comics been in your blood? Oh. Since I was about four or five years old. And um, it started with? Used to, uh, the Neil Adams books caught my eye when I was a kid. I used to go to the public library with my mom, and I would see him everywhere. And at the time, he did a lot of covers and not just interior stuff, so it almost felt like every DC book had some Neil Adams art there, and it just jumped out at me. You know, you know, I've seen you on the convention circuit over the years, and I, it goes without saying, I'm assuming you've uh, you would deal with Neil on the uh, convention circuit, correct? Yes. What was yes, it like the moment telling him, like when you first met him, like how much his work meant to you back then? 
Uh, it was really special. I was nervous. I actually passed him like three or four times before I got up the nerve to actually go over and talk to him. And uh, he was really, really cool. He actually did a Philadelphia cover for us. What is, see, again, what is that like? You you know, you get into the start of comics, loving comics as a kid, and you're like seeing that. And just imagine, you know, you're telling, you know, four-year-old you, hey, just so you know, the guy who just did all this stuff that you love is going to do something what you are making. Oh, it's absolutely nuts. I mean, I think I'm looking at it right now on my wall. Uh, the it, original. I bought the original oh. from him, too. But um, it, an incredible honor. I mean, uh, I got to know him and Bernie Wrightson a little bit, and those guys were my heroes. So still are. Still are my heroes. So it's an honor. So you would say, obviously goes without saying, I'm guessing horror is a big part of uh, your life and horror comics, correct? Yeah, big time. Big time. Uh, that's why... Sort of, you know, in my you look at my TV work, it's a lot of drama and comedy. I really haven't had an opportunity to do as much genre as I like. So I uh, take it out in the uh, comics world and podcast world. I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. Take it out. That's a good way to put it. Or, or vent it out and stuff. And that's really, really cool because, um, again, you said Neil Adams. So what characters come to mind, whether it be Neil or otherwise, when you first started out that you were seeing and not just necessarily eye level on a spinner rack or whatever? Well, Neil was, of course, Batman and Green Lantern, Green Arrow, but he did a lot of House of Mystery, House of Secrets and that kind of stuff. And those kind of read like Twilight Zone episodes to me. And as a kid, you know, I wasn't so much into the serialized thing. So it was easy to sort of wrap your mind around one story and then come back next month and there'd be another story. So that sort of was the thing that hooked me. Did you ever see the Neil Adams Twilight Zone comic, by the way, from uh, that one comic in the uh, early 90s? I did not. Yeah, it, it uh, it's, what's his name? Um, it's written by the guy, he, does, he did like work on Star Trek, he did work in comics. He passed away a few years ago and I don't remember his name offhand right now, but... He's the one who did Sitting on the Edge of Tomorrow for Star Trek. Mm. No. I'm going to have to I know the episode, but I don't know anything about uh Yeah, that title sounds familiar. Not being a huge or too much of a Star Trek fan, but uh, sure. But I'm, try- I'm now trying to do a Dr. Google search of uh, that issue. But it's like, if you want to check it out, the boys from uh, Cart... And by the way, it's uh, Harlan Ellison. Ah, yes. Yes, yes. I'll look it up. But he did a story, and actually the boys from uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe did a video on that, and if you check it out, like, the interiors are absolutely insane. It's Neil at his most Neil-ness, you know? Wow. i got to get that. And, you know, in regard, it's funny. You Would you say, you know, your main association with Neil is the horror stuff, like, you know, the uh, the witching hour and things like that? Uh, yeah, I'd say so, but I was a huge fan of Batman stuff, too. I've got all of those books and CGC and all of that. Um, I love his Batman. Oh, come I love on. his you, Batman, too. you got to crack those CGCs open. Let them breathe. <laughs> <laughs> They'll never... They breathed enough back in, the, back in the day when they were... Yeah, that's that's like opening and letting the money go fly, fly, bye-bye, going away. Exactly. Uh, yeah, um... No, with the horror stuff too. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of a fan in different aspects. And uh, when I heard about you know Blackula, I said, oh, whoa, wait a minute, where you know how does this all come into play? And really, I th- I from what I know about it, isn't that much. It may be a surprise to somebody else in this conversation, uh, but I think I remember it being a cult film following kind of thing, kind of um you know but under the radar 
type of stuff. And I think it was 1972 when the movie was out. For sure. Yep. Exactly. 1972. And I remember seeing some stills, photographs of of that of the character whose name escapes me that played that lead role. And uh, I guess it was just a different take on the mainstay that we always had known. Mm-hmm. Bella Lugosi and so on, Christopher Lee, everybody else that, you know, donned that cape and the fangs and whatnot. Um, but why don't we just uh, go on and into that now? Talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean... Hell of a segue, I was, Eddie. <laughs> I was a huge fan of the Universal Monsters and the Hammer films and had never really seen an African-American character uh, sort of drive the narrative for any of the type of genre stuff that I love. So my mother took me to see both Blackula and Scream, Blackula, Scream, which was uh, the sequel in a double feature. Hmm. And, you know, even though they were black exploitation, which meant that they had a really low budget, um, I still enjoyed them. I still enjoyed what they were. And as I got older, I would continue to revisit them. And I said that if I ever got a chance to rewrite these or do them differently, I would sort of extricate the problematic stuff and try to figure out a way to elevate William Marshall, who played the lead role as Prince Balmawalde, uh, on the same sort of platform as Bella Lugosi or Christopher Lee or Frank Langella or any of the other folks who played um, Dracula in a, in a really sophisticated way. And so I got the literary rights and went about doing just that thing. I think it turned out pretty good. I'm how, curious. Yeah, I was going to say, how long ago did that come about, and how difficult was it to uh, get the gonna, rights? Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah. Uh, the book was published this uh, year, January of uh, this year, and um, I got the literary rights. I met the, uh, I was writing a movie for New Regency, and the president of uh, one of the companies who was producing uh, the film uh, was moved over to Orion, and helped me get the rights from MGM, the literary rights, and really took about a week or two. Wow. Is that it? That's it. Holy cow. Yeah. You know, you brought up the term that I think I have always, and maybe it's only exclusive to the film Blackula, is that that blaxploitation term. Has it never come about with anything else that you know of? Uh, well, black exploitation went on for about a decade. I mean, films like Shaft and Superfly and okay. Patrick Brown and probably about a good 150, 200 films were made so, under that kind of idea. Then maybe this was the first one, the groundbreaking that got the term, and that's what stuck in my brain. Yeah, for, well, probably in a genre way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, gotcha. And it's kind of funny because, you know, when you see the character of Blackula, you know, it's such a unique character in the realm of pop culture where the character is still referenced to this day. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of crazy. Well, the weird name has a weird connotation because it's about how he looks, but it fits Dracula so well and Blackula that I can understand from a marketing place. You know, if I was going to do a vampire movie that had a black vampire at the center of it, saying Blackula sort of already has, like, you know, something that's synonymous that I think the public can grab onto. So even if they haven't seen the movie, they probably heard the name. And it's funny because, you know, like the sh- the name even lives on in things like, you know, The Simpsons, where like it was referenced yeah. as a pop culture, you know, uh, landmark, essentially. Yeah, for sure. If you get on The Simpsons, you're going to live forever. <laughs> right. Now, in regards to, you know, uh, characters in the realm of all of this, like, 
what was the biggest hurdle for you for writing the story? Um, trying to not be over reverent, overly reverent to um, the original film. Uh, there were aspects that I had to include because of the story that I was trying to tell, but I couldn't necessarily just make a piece that was completely marinated in sentiment. I had to uh, tell the story that I was trying to tell and be committed to that. But um, the artist of the book, Jason Sean Alexander, who also illustrates um, Philadelphia as well, I think did a fantastic job of being able to blend the old world of the 70s with today's world um, in a really cool way. And, you know, when it came to setting everything up, if I remember correctly, you were doing uh, crowdfunding for the book to get it off the ground, correct? Nope. Paid it all out of my pocket. God damn, that's cool. <laughs> that's really cool. I like that. Because I, I remember seeing, like, the different things on social media. I, for some reason, I was under the impression it was crowdfunded. and I wish it was. The second one might be. It's an expensive venture, but yeah. And I, I, I'm assuming licensing is like the biggest part of that, of why the cost no. is what it is. Really? No, it was just all of the, um, you know, hiring artists and colorists and oh, getting yeah. it printed and distribute distribution, just everything involved in making a book. I understand why companies go out of business because it is a, um, it's a pretty daunting thing. And comics aren't like when I was growing up. You had comics on uh, every spinner rack and every convenience store and liquor store. And now you have to go out of your way to a comic shop, and you got to hope that that comic shop is carrying the book that you want. So, you know, the process of doing that when you're just a one-man operation is more difficult than if you're one of the big two or, you know, an indie like Image or Boom or one of those companies. And when it came to the, uh, you know, advertising of the the uh, book, one thing that you know you know stuck out for me, I loved seeing was that element of you know. Everything you were doing, like, what was one of your favorite elements of the advertising process of it, of getting out there for promotion? Because I got to say, one of my personal favorite things that I saw was literally going to New York Comic Con, introducing myself to you, and you were wearing, like, that robe. I was like, God damn, this dude's cool. <laughs> like, I just <laughs> loved seeing that. I was like, you know what? You're going all out on this, and I absolutely love that. Uh, I mean, when you're trying to sell something and you're trying to get something out there, you have to... Uh... You have to meet people. You got to press palms. You got to take it more to a grassroots place. And there was a time I remember before the New York Comic Cons and San Diego's got as big as they are now. That they were pretty simple when they were just about comics. And I tried to go back to what I knew and just going from place to place and peddling my wares. And you know, for aspiring creators out there, you know, that are trying to get that start. What would you say is the biggest thing that they, you know, should do in order to get noticed? Um, well, now you've got social media, and I think you can work social media in a way that you really didn't have that resource back in the day in the Internet. I think that's a huge thing. But beyond that, you still have to go and sort of make relationships with comic shops. You have to make relationships with the public, um, Twitter. There's just so many places that you have to go if you really want to gain some semblance of a foothold in the business. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, 
Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. What was it like going to New York Comic Con this year? And I would imagine there were a lot of, you know, young aspiring creators walking up to you, introducing themselves to you, and kind of also doing the pitch that you knew all too well growing up. Um, I always try to be gracious and listen because I understand, just like you said, how difficult it is to break in. Um, it's always cool. It's always an honor that someone thinks there's something I have to say that could help them, you know, achieve their dreams and goals. Um, it's an honor. It's always an honor. Jumping back to what you said, though, uh, Rodney, about uh, going to the comic store and hoping they had what you were looking for. I was never under the impression that if you went to a store, well, again, spinner rack, yeah, convenience store type of thing, they soup to nuts almost they would have, and that's how I started myself getting introduced to other titles. But it's come to me recently that not all the comic book stores are going to have what's coming out every week. So maybe yeah. I was a little disillusioned there, but it, <laughs> I maybe it's a sign of the times of what's happening now because... I love the idea of Eddie walking out of a comic shop, kicking a rock, and getting upset because a Vampirella book wasn't there or something. Hey, watch it. <laughs> um, I think it's tough to, if you own comic shops, you have to take a bet on the thing that you buy, someone else coming in and buying it. You know, you can't just have product sitting on the shelves. That doesn't help keep the store open. So if you've got a book on the shelf that no one knows about, very rarely, and it costs almost 20 bucks, you know, it's, um, yeah. and you've got a Batman book next to it or a bunch of other books that people know and have name recognition. It's probably going to be a tough sell. So I get why a lot of them wouldn't want to take a chance on a book like that. Um, that said, I think with the success of it, we sold out a couple of printings and um, it's done really well, you know, but you have to prove that. You sort of have to earn the faith and the trust in the public and the um, the folks that sell these things. I, uh, I work with, sort of, or I'm friendly with the comic book store owner in the Fort Lauderdale, Florida area, and weekly, of course, he's getting from a couple of different companies, and he always has to call in, like others do, with damages, dings, things, things like that, and I guess they do swap outs. Was there a time, maybe, again, it's something that my memory is fading on me, that where if there was an excess of issues sent that the store could actually return do you know copies for credit i think for they do now i mean um because you know people don't just use diamond anymore you've got simon and schuster you've got a bunch of other places that uh distribute books and i think they all have their own separate policies it's sort of like the wild west now where you have a bunch of different folks doing a bunch of different things so I believe that's the case but i can't say for sure yeah i was thinking it was something that was practiced and done prior but i really hadn't heard anything you know recently and then yeah like you said it's not all just diamond now i think there's uh, penguin and there's yeah. at least one other one that i'm again not thinking of but and then and then in terms of who the carrier is to uh 
you know, get the shipping to you, whether it's FedEx or UPS or, you know what, I order, I only ordered, I hear from my friend, the comic book store owner says, uh, I only ordered five books and they came in this humongous box and what a waste or even less than that. And two different orders, two different ships. I don't know how. Yeah, but free box at least. Well, yeah, but whether you need it or not, I don't know. Well, the cat would want it. <laughs> yeah, the cat. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because, you know, you see like in recent memory, you know, obviously superheroes, you know, run the roost of comics. Like, that's what it's always going to be. But I have yeah. noticed heavily over the last few years the one genre that, like, is surpassing everything is horror. Like, when you see things mm-hmm. like, you know, James Tinian's Something is Killing the Children, which, by the way, I found out from the man himself, it's monsters. Um, You know, a lot of different things. Horror is getting to be that top genre that might even, in a lot of ways, surpass the superhero stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is there's certainly a place for it, and I think I don't know if it'll ever surpass it, but I think it'll be on an equal plane at some point. And you see, like in those big two with deceased and the Marvel zombies, that you see horror sort of invading the superhero world. So you sort of have this hybrid place of the two. Whereas back in the day, you would have a regular Werewolf by Night or Tomb of Dracula in those books in the Marvel universe. And I don't see them, like, as a regular. I see them come back sometimes in miniseries, or they'll start up with 10 issues or so, and then reboot. But I think horror will make... Horror is a fixture, and it's going to be here, and I think it'll be competitive, like you were saying. I mean, because it's, it's absolutely insane, because, like, you know, even, like, you look at uh, the realm of manga, like, Junji Ito is the Michael Jordan of horror manga, and Junji Ito is, like numero uno you know Mm -hmm. and it's kind of crazy because like that stuff beats out like sometimes like the sales like of things like you know my hero academia or uh spy x family or whatever it's called you know somewhere somewhere some an anime fan in a flame button down shirt is like punching the air right now me saying all this stuff and getting the names (laughs) wrong and i love it (laughs) but i love the fact that you know there is more variety in comics now and it is never more prevalent than now. Right. Yeah, never. Well, like you said too earlier, Rodney, that with collecting and reading the House of Mystery and all those other titles, they would be all self-contained. And I think in most part, you'd get two or three stories. They'd all be their own individual thing. You didn't have to get the next issue per se. Although in my case, I happen to stumble across stuff and they may or may not be expensive or they might be relatively inexpensive. It was something that especially in those days of the 70s, early 70s, I really would say uh, that you thought of it as disposable literature. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to Patton Oswalt not too long ago, and he was saying the same thing, that when books were like 10 cents, 12 cents, 20 cents a quarter, that they weren't, no one was expecting that they were like um, something you would collect and it would be like IP. It was you know, disposable entertainment, as you were saying. And, um, you know, I never took it that way. Even as a kid, as I got older and I started to collect, I remember how angry I was when they went from 25 cents to 35 cents. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, they're trying to break me. And now, you know, they're like four bucks. But back then, um, it was the greatest hobby in the world. There may have been for a brief amount of time a 30-cent period, I think. It could have been. I remember Legion of Superheroes, the Mike Grell books, 
they were right on that range. I remember they kept going up. They had the big 20 cents. And then the more expensive they became, the smaller the price was printed on the cover. Like they were proud of 20 cents, but then when it went to 25 and 30 and 35, it got smaller. And if you paid attention, maybe too, you'd st- you'd get in a big starburst kind of thing, still only 35 cents. Yeah, exactly. Which means it's exactly. the price yeah. is going up to 40, kids. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Get the other nickel and it was ready. Outrage. Yes, absolutely. Now, oh, God, it's another 50 cents. Just boom, like that, or a dollar. What the heck? My my problem is I hate seeing now that it's getting $5, and I kind of have, like, there was a book. I'm not going to say the name of the book, and I absolutely love it. I don't want to dismiss them, although I will say this. It is the distinguished competition. And the book, when I saw it went to five, I'm like, I love this book, but not $5, love. You know, right. like I'll do that yeah. for a facsimile edition. I love the facsimiles. And I think like I will continue to say this. Marvel does not understand what makes the DC one so great because they actually use the actual paper stock. That's just mm. I love I like that. You know, it's it's a facsimile literally. Yeah. Well, maybe that justifies the seven dollar price or so. Oh, boy. I can't Whatever wait. To, it is. I can't wait to read this Jack Kirby on glossy paper. <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, it's a fact. Yeah, anyway. clearly. And in some cases, yeah, it's four dollars for a facsimile, and I'm, you know, depending on what it is and what the individual's interest is, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Now, in regards to, oh, go ahead. You broke up a little bit. Go ahead, Eddie. Repeat yourself. Oh no! Again, it depends on the person's interest as to what you want to shell out for whatever facsimile it might be. Yep. And in some cases, I'm going to cite Spider-Man, for example. At least one source has said, yeah, if it's a reprint, you get it too. It could turn, it'll turn into something that's worth getting again. Yeah, $2. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> my, my thing is, like, I miss I, – I like seeing, though, the uh, over-image. And I, have they done it for you guys yet for Philadelphia, the uh, dollar reprints of a number one? Yeah, we did Hell one yeah. for the first issue. They did a dollar one. Um and I was selling them at conventions for a while. But, yeah, they had them for a buck. That is the biggest compliment for the book itself as well because they don't do that for just any book out of those. You know, it's like, hey, these are the image books that truly matter. So, add a boy, Rodney Honk Honk. I appreciate it. I appreciate Image a great deal. They helped put us on the map. And it's funny because, you know, with the realm of comics – Image Image is one of those companies that will continually knock it out of the park. Like, you see, what's his name? Uh, Robert Kirkman going around doing his thing with The Walking Dead. But he, the man has been able to pull off so much now with, like, the... Like, he's kind of like you, where he does so many different genres. And, you know, he's doing the horror. He's doing the superheroes. He's doing science fiction, this, that. For yourself, as someone who's done so many different genres... What is the one that is the most difficult and the easiest to go for for you? Um, the most difficult. I mean, the easiest is horror because it's the one that I'm most emotionally connected to. I think the um, the mainstream superhero ones, because of the boundaries, um, those are the ones that are the most difficult. To be fair, though, your Falcon was pretty damn good. Just thank saying. you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. So you don't try to make it a horror book by the end, though. But yes, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> yes. What is one of the biggest bits of advice that you can give aspiring creators in regards to tackling genres that they're not used to that, you know, they don't have the experience? What would you say for them to do? I always say develop your own voice. I mean, the thing that separates me from another writer is the way I write, the way I think. 
um, my approach to story. You don't want to to try to carbon copy somebody else's style or way because a you'll never do it as well as they do it because it's theirs, and b everybody has something to say. Everybody has something that's unique about them and the way that they look at the world. And I think um, that's the only path, the only proven path to consistency and success in this business. Any other horror titles or uh, characters, Rodney, come to mind that you thought about doing or you know trying to get into, involved with, or anything like that? I mean, beyond my own, I would love to do a run on Swamp Thing. Um, anybody that knows me knows that I bring that up from time to time. That's my favorite character of all time. So it would be an honor to sort of have my name next to all the great people who've worked on that title. And what would you say is like the the main connection for yourself with Swampy? Like, what attracts you to the character? Um, I think if you look at the Lin Wen Bernie Wrightson era, you know that was really great. Of course, Alan Moore and Bassett and Total Ben, and then you know Scott Snyder and so many great folks have done great runs with the character. And the character sort of, you know, sometimes he's just a monster, sometimes he's like a spiritual creature, sometimes he's a god. Um, the book is so um, sort of there's so much dexterity to the character that he can be so many different things and so many great folks that work with it that you know it's sort of a challenge to come up with something new in regards to uh, Swampy another thing that you know he's a character that I, I back in the day isn't it funny that a character like Swampy was you had to be a hardcore comic fan to know him, and now you know you look at the day and age we live in. Swampy is on his way to being a household name. Yes, he is. Like we're closest gonna... thing in the horror title, but for sure. And it's kind of crazy because, like you, you know, you see James Gunn going around. He's going to be, you know, they're doing it with the upcoming slate of everything going on. Do you think Swampy works better? You know, as, as someone in the entertainment industry. Could Swampy work as a movie or a TV show? Because I feel like TV show would be benefited so much more, and it just bums me out because of the Swamp Thing TV show that we had. Yeah. <laughs> well, both. I of agree. Them. I mean, I think the serialized nature of television allows you to continuously tell a story that fits, I want the comic book way. Like you can do issue after issue after issue. You can do episode after episode. You can have runs. So the same way you have seasons of television if you do it a particular way. Um, but it's also very, very expensive in a world that I think you're going to see a lot of shows contract more so than expand, whereas you used to have shows that were $200 million, uh budgetary-wise a season. You're not going to have very, very many of those shows anymore, except if they have a dragon in them, maybe. <laughs> but uh, as far as comic Things, comic genre type things. I, I don't know how many men, how many more big budgeted things you're going to find. It's kind of crazy too because within the last five years, give or take, we've seen Swamp Thing, you know, return to the television screen. We've seen Man Thing, you know, return to television as well, you know, with the uh, Werewolf by Night. And again, I love that you know these companies now, Marvel and DC, they're acknowledging the stuff, the horror stuff. The horror stuff saved the comics in the 50s in many ways. You know, kept it going, and 
it's nice to know that you know they're they're still acknowledging that it's a damn fine important part of the uh, tapestry of the world of comics and even comic book related media. Yeah, sure. Well, I you know I think to that point a little bit what Peter said that also I think in the fifties you had the romance comics you had mm-hmm. war stories and those yep. still still seem to be in if nothing else, in, in high demand, and I'm thinking more so the stuff that I actually started out with when I was about 10 years old, and that was Weird War Tales and The Unknown Soldier. You know, Eddie, actually mm-hmm. just now you mentioned with uh, romance with comics. I have to ask you, because for some reason, every time I think of Swamp Thing, all I just imagine him is saying, Abigail. <laughs> so I have to ask, <laughs> when you read Swamp Thing comics, what voice do you read Swampy in? It's horse and broken Not up. Not you, Eddie, him. Sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, I hear him that way, too. I hear um, that you did it perfectly. You could have been Swamp Thing. I thought Swamp Thing got on a call. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the advantage of our Ted Salas over at Marvel with Man because he can't speak at all. <laughs> so there's that. I mean, Man Thing needs eye drops, though. Those red eyes are just too much. Uh, yes, and also gl- protective flame-retardant gloves, I suppose. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. <laughs> now, if you, in, if you know, you know. All right. Now, in regards to, you know, your work over at Marvel, because you've done a lot of stuff over at Marvel, and even currently with the Mandalorian comics, you mm-hmm. know, what was it like the minute you got that phone call, you know, off, getting offered work to do stuff at Marvel? I was exciting. I mean, I sort of prompted the phone call because I was working on a TV show, Runaways, for Marvel. Uh, for Marvel Television, and I sort of made it known that I wanted to do a comic book, and that's how I ended up with the assignment for the Falcon. And as far and I did uh, another book, um, the prequel to the Han Solo movie about uh, Lando Calrissi, uh, the young, the Donald Glover version, uh, Lando Double or Nothing. That was my first Star Wars book, and then I did um, a War of the Bounty Hunters IG88 story. And um, then Mandalorian, and now I'm doing a bunch of them, a bunch of the adaptations and an original I'm actually doing right now. Well, I don't know if we can say that officially, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. One yeah. thing I have to say, though, anyone who does stuff with Star Wars that, you know, is the uh, their own original work with Star Wars, what is it like? And I will always make this. I've asked Mark Wade, and I'll ask you. When you're making something in the Star Wars mythos and it's considered now with the, you know, the post-Disney acquisition where it's considered canon, what is it like knowing that, you know, like let's say you do something in the prequel era or let's say you do something in the, uh, the original, the Holy Trilogy or even in mm-hmm. something later on, the characters' actions you have them do. Like let's say you did something in that IG-88 comic. The actions of those characters that you had them do technically lead on then later on to the sequel trilogy. Like, your actions were that part of that domino effect, you know? What is yeah. it like knowing uh, that? I'm honored. I mean, for the kid in me that saw the original um, in 1977, uh, stood in line to see it, and to think that even in some small way, you know, anything that I've done has been a part of that mythos is, like, mind-blowing. <laughs> Now, how many times have you seen the original Star Wars back in the day, and then how many times did you read the comic? Um, the original comic, the, yeah. the, the first one that came out, the Chaken one, yeah. 
Oh, my God. Um, I have it. I probably only read it about four or five times. Um, I didn't want to mess it up and bend it up. I was that kid. But mm-hmm. I've seen the movie probably a couple hundred times. How many that year? That summer in 77? Mm, about five or six times. See, it's it nev- was tough to get into. It was in the theaters for almost like six months or so. And you don't, like, I think the last time a film truly was in that kind of, like, long run of distribution was the uh, James Cameron Avatar movie, the first and second one, you know? They haven't yeah. done something like that in so long, and I'd kind of like to see something like that, like a big, you know, non-Blue uh, People uh, movie event, you know? Yeah, I remember Apocalypse Now was at the theater for almost, like, eight months. I remember Titanic was in there for a solid year and a half, give or take. Oh, man. Wow, yeah. It definitely took the boat shorter to uh, sink than it did to leave the theaters. <laughs> but in regards to, you know, the Star Wars mythos, you know, you doing the adaptation stuff as well, like what is the biggest misconception that you've gotten in regards to uh, working on an adaptation of, you know, a, you know pre-existing work? I think that they're simple. Um, you know, trying to condense an hour plus in some cases, um, of television down to 30 satisfying pages is not the easiest thing in the world, um, certainly for the Mando books. But um, just that it's simple. I mean, you almost have to plot it visually, and you have to pick and choose the stuff that's absolutely necessary in order to make it flow like the TV show. Not easy. Well, when you say uh, not easy, I'm thinking of, you know, you're a Mandalorian, and for the uneducated like myself, not knowing how much of that is out that you've done, Mandalorian specifically, and I, I immediately kind of go to the monthly comic book um, previews, Marvel in particular. Half of that preview seems to be, or at least a quarter of it, all Star Wars-related stuff. <laughs> yeah, how, yeah. I, And I, I wonder, how does one, uh, I want to say, quote-unquote, thankfully, I'm not into that part of Star Wars, it's enough of what I have to deal with between Marvel, DC, and Independence and all this thousands of stuff for me to read and catch up on. Um, but is there dissension among the ranks in the sense of the fan who either wants to collect it, absorb it all, take it in all, uh, upset with the way something was done? Um, what you're, have you... Wait, 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 wait a minute, Eddie. You're asking if Star Wars fans were outraged over something and complained about something. That's never happened in the Star Wars fandom, Eddie. Never, ever, ever. I meant the comic part of it, not the films or shows. I love Eddie's innocence right now because yeah. I know that was a genuine question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slow build. No, they, um, the, biggest, the biggest complaint from the Mando books is they were hoping that there was something new in it, that there would be something that was different about the show in the book and couldn't do it. You know, I had to stay within the boundaries of what the show was. And that's perfectly fine because again, those those seasons slapped. I like them. So, you know, cool. I like that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like hoping there's a season three, but yeah. You mean for the comic or the the show? For the comic. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. I, I, I can't ask, but I totally would ask. I really do hope you can do maybe like, you know, maybe like a, a one shot thing or whatever of the book of Boba Fett. The book of the book of Boba Fett. Uh, no comment. <laughs> I can't say. Can't say what I'm thinking. Yep. But in regards to, you know, with Star Wars, again, it's such it's such a wide weaving tapestry of, you know, a pop culture phenomenon and. Are there, like, first off, what was the moment when you were making your original content with Star Wars 
that you were just like, this is the coolest thing that I get to do right now? Oh, that was way back mm-hmm. when um, when I first got the Lando Calrissian gig and they invited me to the Star Wars offices over in Disney. And I got to see the movie before anybody else. And, you know, all of the cool Star Wars stuff. They have a really great office. Um, that was the most exciting part, just the beginning, just feeling like you were a part of the whole experience. And by the way, how damn smooth was uh, Donald Glover as Hans? I mean, as uh, Lando Calrissian? I want to see him cool. back in the role. It wasn't Billy D. Williams cool, but he was cool in his own way. <laughs> yeah. My favorite moment, though, like as much as I did not care for the movie Rise of Skywalker, damn, seeing Billy D. back in the role again one more time was pretty damn great. Mm-hmm. Was. And it's funny because you know, again, like when you realize, yes, you know, you're writing the Donald Glover version you're still in theory writing the Billy D Williams version as well, you know, and yes, there's just something are. like so special about it because like he does become Billy D just not at this moment, but it's still like it's in there in the future. Exactly. Now in regards to other star Wars related stuff, you know, what would you say is also the biggest misconception of writing star Wars related content? Um, just that you have a bunch of freedom to do a bunch of different things. I mean, there's a whole, like you say, there's a, uh, there's a complete, there's a galaxy that you're connecting it all to. You have to go through the Marvel folks and the Lucasfilm folks when you're writing something. So it's not complete autonomy in telling a story. Um, it's different, different. Were there characters at all that you wanted to, you know, maybe interest? Like, were you, are, were you ever much of a fan of the uh, old Star Wars canon, the EU? Uh, not as much. Not as much. There was a period that I went through where, you know, I was trying to figure out uh, how to make money, and I wasn't spending it on comics quite as much as I do now. But, um, yeah, there was that period, so no. Okay, so now that you mentioned that we can't, you know, we can't ignore the elephant in the room with this, what is the uh, best top dollar book you've bought in recent memory? Back issue or like current? Back, back issue, yes. I just bought a run of the Neil, another run of the Neil Adams Batman, the 251 with Joker with the Batman card. Yes. And um, those books, like 10 of them, uh, I just bought 10 of those literally a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. I love that cover so damn much. And that story, I think it's the Joker's four-way something? Yeah, yeah. It was a cool book. It's funny, too, because a friend of the show, uh, pro wrestler Donovan Danhausen, he actually has a... Uh, they, DC did a variant cover of him as the Joker now, and it's pretty damn wow. spectacular. He gets, to, he gets to live every geek's dream. Yeah. Beat up, beat up yeah. Batman. <laughs> Although you can technically... You can, you can get also beaten up by Batman at a convention, but it's not advised, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, Just not same. advised. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, no, the getting punched in the face is probably still the same as the regular Batman. <laughs> But I digress. Uh, it's just funny because you look at, again, the. Well, let me ask, what is the white whale right now for your uh, collection that you want to try and track down? I would love. What I typically do is, like, there was a time when I wanted all of the X Men from one to current. And I'll get them all, and then I'll go to another, like the Avengers. Uh, now I'm looking at Sandman. Ooh. I would love to be able to get all of the Sandmans. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because Sandman is one of those, you can find them, but, like, in a lot of ways, like, they can be a pain in the ass to get, you know? Like, number one, yeah. 
I feel like you can get. I've never seen, like, for example, the first appearance of death out in the wild. Still haven't seen right. that. Right. Which, which is funny because, like, that's something you would easily find back in the day. Now it's like everyone wants it. Every, you know, every goth girl, like, they really want that book. And, like, I get it. It's a great issue. It is. It is. And it's funny. But, like, if you have the opportunity, I mean, obviously it goes, it's a no-brainer. But if you had the opportunity, you would absolutely do some work on the Sandman show, Correct. Oh, for sure. I mean, I did American Gods, so I would love to be able to work on the Sandman show. So what was it like working alongside Neil? It was great. Neil's great. Neil and his entire team. I'm still uh, friends with a bunch of those folks, and um, it was a great time all around. It's funny, because like, he, he is still like... I love that he's been one of those comic creators that you know transcended the pop culture medium, left the realm of comics, and moved on to just entertainment in general. And he still mm-hmm. loves and has respect for the art form that gave him, you know, his big break. Yes. And you don't see... Man you don't of the see, people. Hell yeah. He's still... There's a local shop by us uh, called Golden Notebook Books over in uh, Woodstock, New York. And he signs books all the time. Like, they're all cover price. I go in, like, I was like, you know what? I want a copy of Good Omens and Paperback signed by yeah. uh, Neil Gaiman. I go in there, hey, you got a book signed by Neil Gaiman? Which one's stupid? Uh, this one. And they go, yes, we do. And I bought it. And that's the end of that story. <laughs> there wasn't much to that story, ladies and gentlemen. He likes telling stories. you got to understand, Rodney. A pointless story, par oh, for the good. course in my life. Well, I don't want to go... Nothing like stories. Right. I don't want to go back and be morbid, but I didn't realize that there oh, was no. a first appearance of death in Sandman. Okay, now that's the third iteration of death that I'm coming into contact with over my, my years. Eddie just had a brush with death, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's going to be a triple because oh, no. I, I recently came across, and pretty inexpensively, which is under 20 bucks, got the ninth issue of the 1970s comic, War is Hell, which is the first appearance of death, I'm told. And, mm. if, and the other, but that made me think to the whole first appearance of Thanos in, what is it, Iron Man 55, and he courts death. Well, does death? Where does death appear? Is this the same death in the Marvel comics? And when does that all come about? When Thanos is with death? I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Tough to say. If you, yeah, so you're in the quandary like me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. To be continued or not. Now, in regards to you know other comics, like what would you say is you know your next uh, or not next? Sorry. What was, like, the white whale for you earlier when, like, you finally got, like, your first white whale and how you felt when you finally got it all? Uh, the Warlock books. Jim Starlin's Warlock run, I think, was my first, um, his entire run and his Captain Marvel run as well. I'm a huge Jim Starlin fan. What was the, uh, like, I've, I've talked to other guests about it before in the past, but the uh, Adam Warlock stuff by Starlin... I've tried getting into it and I can't get into it. What's the well, thing that, you know, could, you know, in your opinion, that makes it so compelling that maybe, you know, I am not looking at it the right way. You know what I mean? Like what's the, what's the mindset I should be in when I read those? I just love the cosmic stuff. Um, always been a fan of it. Um, and I think that he really handled it well, adding the human element, human component to it. Um, yeah. I, I just dug it. I love the art. I love the um, sort of acid, you know, on acid type of look and feel to it all. I thought it was fantastic. Which, in a sense, 
Well, it does make sense, too, because it's coming out of the 60s era, so the, the acid part of it, I, I get that, yeah. Yeah. Now, before we wrap this episode up, one other thing I want to ask you is, first off, what is next for you with the realm of comics and also just pop culture entertainment in general? Uh, doing a bunch of comics right now that I probably can't say anything about, a bunch of stuff for DC and Marvel. Um, as far as television, I'm doing a miniseries at HBO about the life and times of uh, heavyweight champion Jack Johnson with Mahershala Ali uh, and a bunch of other things in development and a different processes of things. You really can't escape Blade, can you? Try not to. Try not to. <laughs> And, you know, it's it's funny. I'll, I'll just say this. In a roundabout way, if you can confirm or deny, will any of the... Uh, how do I say it? Say nothing if the Marvel book is about the legendary group Brute Force. It's not. Oh, oh good. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> actually, is it Mort the uh, living... Te- or the Mort the dead teenager? No. no. Oh, well, I mean, that's horror, too. He is nope. a dead teenager, so... that's. Nothing scarier than that. No, not at all. But anyway, Rodney, once again, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today. You're very welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Now, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on the worldwide interwebs? Uh, at the Rodney Barnes on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. You can find me at all of those places. By the way, I love that we're still calling it Twitter because no one wants to call it X. X just sounds like a exactly. terrible name. It's so I don't dumb. know what X sounds nuts, but yeah. They, they don't call them tweets anymore. They call them zeets or something. I'm like, that's stupid. Yeah, I don't call them that. Yeah, it's Twitter. Yeah, well, it's either that or say X formerly Twitter, and that's too long to yeah. say, I suppose. The artist formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. It's a symbol. What is it? It's an X, so why don't we just call it X? No, it's a symbol. There's two lines crossed. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Rodney Barnes. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!